Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Love and Fate by Vasily Grossman Chapter 1 There was a low mist. You could see the glare of headlamps reflected on the high voltage cables beside the road. It hadn't rained, but the ground was still wet with dew. The traffic lights cast blurred red spots on the asphalt. You could sense the breath of the camp from miles away. Roads, railway tracks and cables all gradually converged on it. This was a world of straight lines. A grid of rectangles and parallelograms imposed on the autumn sky, on the mist and on the earth itself. Distant sirens gave faint, long-drawn-out wails. The road drew alongside the railway line. For a while, the column of trucks carrying paper sacks of cement moved at the same speed as an endless train of freight wagons. The truck drivers in their military greatcoats never once looked at the wagons or at the pale, blurred faces inside them. Then the fence of the camp appeared out of the mist, endless lines of wire strung between reinforced concrete posts. The wooden barrack huts stretched out in long, broad streets. Their very uniformity was an expression of the inhuman character of this vast camp. Among a million Russian huts, you will never find even two that are exactly the same. Everything that lives is unique. It is unimaginable that two people or two briar roses should be identical. If you attempt to erase the peculiarities and individuality of life by violence, then life itself must suffocate. The grey-haired engine driver watched casually, yet attentively. Concrete posts revolving searchlights on high masts and glass-domed towers flashed by. In the domes stood guards with mounted machine guns. The driver winked at his mate and the locomotive gave a warning hoot. A brilliantly lit cabin passed by, then a queue of cars beside a striped level crossing barrier and a red traffic signal. From the distance came the hoot of an approaching train. The driver turned to his mate. That Zucker. I can tell by the whistle. He's already unloaded. Now he's taking the empty wagons back to Munich. There was a deafening roar as the two trains met. The air was torn apart, patches of grey flashed between the wagons, and then the torn shreds of space and grey autumn light were woven together into a seamless cloth. The driver's mate took out a pocket mirror and looked at his smudged cheek. With a gesture, the driver asked if he could borrow it. Honestly, Comrade Apfel, said the mate excitedly, if it wasn't for all this disinfecting the wagons, we'd be back home by supper time. As it is, we'll be out till four in the morning, as though they couldn't be disinfected back at the junction. The old driver had heard this complaint many times before. Give a good long hoot, he said. We're to be put straight through to the main unloading area. Chapter 2 In the German camp, for the first time since the Second Congress of the Comintern, Mikhail Sidorovich Mostovskoy had the chance to make use of his knowledge of foreign languages. Before the war in Leningrad, there had been few opportunities to speak to foreigners. Now he remembered his years of exile in London and Switzerland, years when he and his fellow revolutionaries had talked, quarrelled and sung in nearly all the languages of Europe. 
Gardi, the Italian priest, who was Mostovskoy's neighbour on the bedboards, had said there were 56 different nationalities in the camp. The tens of thousands of prisoners shared the same fate, the same pallor, the same clothes, the same shuffling gait, and the same soup made from Swedes mixed with the ersatz sago, known by the Russians as fish eyes. The camp authorities distinguished the prisoners by number and by the colour of the stripes sewn onto their jackets, red for politicals, black for saboteurs, green for thieves and murderers. People unable to understand one another in the confusion of tongues were bound by a shared fate. Specialists in molecular physics or ancient manuscripts lay on the bedboards beside Italian peasants and Croat shepherds who were unable to sign their names. A man who used to order breakfast from his cook, wiring his housekeeper with his bad appetite, walked to work beside a man who had lived all his life on a diet of salt cod. Their wooden soles made the same clatter on the ground, and they looked round with the same anxiety to see if the Kostreger were coming round with their rations. The very differences in the lives of these prisoners gave rise to a certain similarity, whether their vision of the past was a small garden beside a dusty Italian road, the sullen boom of the North Sea, or an orange paper lantern in a house for senior personnel on the outskirts of Bobriusk. All these prisoners, without exception, had enjoyed a wonderful past. The more difficult a man's life had been before the camp, the more furiously he lied. This lie had no practical purpose, it served simply to glorify freedom. How could a man be unhappy outside the camp? Before the war, this camp had been known as a camp for political criminals. National Socialism had created a new type of political criminal, criminals who had not committed a crime. Many of the prisoners had been sent here merely for telling political anecdotes or for criticising the Hitler regime in conversation with friends. The charge against them was not that they actually had distributed political leaflets or joined underground parties, but that one day they might. The detainment of prisoners of war in a concentration camp for political prisoners was another innovation of fascism. Here, as well as English and American pilots shot down over Germany, were officers and commissars of the Red Army. The latter were of especial interest to the Gestapo and were constantly being pressured to give information to collaborate to sign every conceivable sort of document. There were saboteurs in the camp, men who had left their work at military factories or construction sites without permission, sending idle workers to concentration camps, was another innovation of National Socialism. There were people with lilac stripes on their jackets, emigres from fascist Germany. This too was an innovation of National Socialism. Anyone who had left Germany, however patriotically they had behaved abroad, was a political enemy. The people with green stripes on their jackets, the thieves and burglars, were a privileged caste. The authorities relied on them to supervise the politicals. Giving common criminals power over political prisoners was yet another innovation of National Socialism. There were people whose past history was so peculiar that no appropriate colour of stripe had been found for them. But the Italian snake charmer, the Persian who had come from Tehran to study German painting, and the Chinese student of physics all found National Socialism ready to offer them a board to lie on, a bowl of watery soup, and 12 hours a day to work on the marshland. Day and night, trainloads of men continued to arrive at the death camps and concentration camps. The air was full of the rumble of wheels, the whistling of locomotives and the thud of hundreds of thousands of prisoners marching to work, each with a five-figure number sewn onto his clothes. These camps, with their streets and squares, their hospitals and flea markets, their crematoria and their stadiums, were the expanding cities of a new Europe. How naive, how kindly and patriarchal the old prisons huddled on the outskirts of towns now appeared beside these camp cities, beside the awful crimson-black glow that hung over the gas ovens.
you might well think that the management of such a vast number of prisoners would have required an equally vast army of guards and supervisors. In fact, whole weeks would pass by without anyone in an SS uniform so much as appearing inside the barrack huts. It was the prisoners themselves who policed the camp cities. It was the prisoners themselves who supervised the internal routine, who made sure that the rotten, half-frozen potatoes ended up in their own saucepans, while the good quality ones were set aside for army supply bases. The prisoners themselves were the doctors and bacteriologists in the camp hospitals and laboratories, the caretakers who swept the camp pavements. They were even the engineers responsible for providing the camp with light and heat, for maintaining the motorised transport. The capos, the fierce and vigilant camp police, wore a thick yellow band on their left sleeve. Together with the camp orderlies, block orderlies and hut orderlies, they controlled the hierarchy of camp life, from matters that concerned the camp as a whole to the personal affairs that were carried on at night on the bedboards. The prisoners played their part in the most confidential work of the camp, even the selection of prisoners to be sent to the death camps, even the interrogation of prisoners in the concrete boxes known as the dark rooms. It seemed as though the German authorities could disappear altogether. The prisoners would maintain the high-voltage current in the wires and go on with their work. The capos and block orderlies simply carried out the tasks assigned to them. Sometimes they gave a sigh of regret, sometimes they shed a few tears for the people they sent to the gas ovens. What they did not do, however, was include their own names on these lists. What Mostovskoy found most sinister of all was that National Socialism seemed so at home in the camp. Rather than peering haughtily at the common people through a monocle, it talked and joked in their own language. It was down to earth and plebeian. And... It had an excellent knowledge of the mind, language and soul of those it deprived of freedom. Chapter 3 Mikhail Mostovskoy, Agrippina Petrovna, Sofia Levinton and Semyonov had been captured by the Germans on the outskirts of Stalingrad one night in August. They had been taken straight to the headquarters of an infantry division. Agrippina Petrovna had been released after interrogation. On the instructions of a military police officer, the translator had provided her with a loaf of pea flour bread and two thirty-rouble coins. Semyonov, an army driver, had been sent to join a column of prisoners being marched to a camp near the village of Bertiachi. Mostovskoy and Sofia Levinton, an army doctor, had been driven to army group headquarters. That was the last time Mostovskoy had seen Sofia Levinton. She had been standing in the middle of a dust yard. She had no forage cap and the insignia of rank had been ripped from her uniform. The look of sullen hatred on her face had filled Mostovskoy with admiration. Mostovskoy had been interrogated three times. He had then been marched to the railway station where a train carrying supplies of corn was about to depart. Ten coaches had been set aside for young men and women being sent as forced labourers to Germany. Mostovskoy could hear the women screaming as the train moved off. He himself had been locked into a small service compartment. His guard was quite polite, but whenever Mostovskoy asked a question, his face took on the expression of a deaf mute. At the same time, it was clear that all his attention was focused on Mostovskoy. He was like an experienced zookeeper watching a box that housed a wild animal being transported by rail. When the train entered Poland, Mostovskoy had been joined by a Polish bishop, a tall, handsome man with grey hair and full, boyish lips, Immediately, with a marked accident, he had started telling Mostovskoy about the current executions of the Polish clergy. Mostovskoy had begun to abuse Catholicism and the Pope, and the bishop had fallen silent. From then on, he had answered Mostovskoy's questions brusquely and in Polish. A few hours later, at Poznan, he had been taken off the train.
Rostovskoy had been taken directly to the camp without visiting Berlin. Now it seemed that he'd been here for years, in this block for prisoners of special interest to the Gestapo. They were better fed here, but their good life was that of guinea pigs in a laboratory. The orderly would call a man to the door, a friend would offer him some tobacco in exchange for a ration of bread, and the man would return to his place on the bedboards, grinning with satisfaction. The orderly would then call another man who was telling a story, and the friend he'd been talking to would never hear how the story ended. The following day, a capo would walk up to his place on the boards and tell the orderly to collect his belongings. Someone else would then beg Kiza, the hot orderly, for permission to occupy the now-empty place. Mostovskoy had even got used to the conversation here, a terrible mixture of the lists for the death camps, the gas ovens, and the camp football teams. The marsh team's the best, the bog soldiers, and sickbay's not bad. The kitchen team's got some fast forwards. The poles have got no defence at all. He had grown equally accustomed to the countless rumours that spread through the camp, either about the invention of some new weapon or about rifts between the National Socialist leaders. These rumours were invariably both comforting and false. The opium of the camps. Chapter 4 Snow fell early in the morning and lay there till noon. The Russians felt a joy that was steeped in sorrow. Russia herself was breathing over them, spreading a mother's shawl beneath their poor exhausted feet. The barracks, with their white roofs, looked like the huts in a Russian village. The orderly, a Spanish soldier called Andrea, came up to Mostovskoy and addressed him in broken French. He said that a clerk he knew had seen Mostovskoy's name on a paper, but his boss had taken the paper away before he'd had time to read it. My fate hangs on that bit of paper, thought Mostovskoy. He was glad to find this thought left him so calm. But it doesn't matter, murmured Andrea. We'll still be able to find out. From the commandant, asked Gardy, his huge black eyes shining in the half-light. Or from SS officer Liss. Mostovskoy was amazed at the difference between Gardy by day and Gardy by night. During the day, he talked about the soup and the new arrivals, drove bargains with his neighbours, and recalled the piquant garlic-flavoured dishes of his homeland. The Russian soldiers all knew his favourite saying, Tutti Kaputti, and would shout it out to him across the camp square, smiling as though they were saying something reassuring. They called him Papa Padre, thinking that Padre was his first name. One evening, the Soviet officers and commissars in the special bloc had been laughing at Gardi, joking about whether or not he had observed his vow of chastity. Gardi had listened unsmilingly to the jumbled fragments of French, German and Russian. Then he had begun to speak himself, and Mostovskoy had translated. In the name of their ideals, the Russian revolutionaries had gone to penal servitude and the scaffold. Why, then, should they doubt that for a religious ideal a man might renounce intimacy with women? After all, it was hardly comparable to sacrificing one's life. Tell us another, Brigade Commissar Osipov had muttered. At night, while everyone was asleep, Gardy became another man. He would sit there and pray. It would seem, then, that all the suffering in this penal city could dissolve in the black velvet of his ecstatic bulging eyes. The veins would stand out on his brown neck and his long, apathetic face would take on an expression of obstinate and sombre happiness. He would go on praying for a long time and Mostovskoy would fall asleep to the sound of his quick, low whispering. After an hour or two, Mostovskoy usually woke up. By then, Gardy would be sleeping his usual turbulent sleep. It was as though he were trying to reconcile his two different selves, 
He would snore, smack his lips, gnash his teeth, let out thunderous farts, and then suddenly begin a wonderful prayer about the mercy of God the Father and the Virgin Mary. Gardy often questioned Mostovsky about Soviet Russia, never once reproaching him for his atheism. He would nod his head as he listened to the old Bolshevik, as though approving the closing down of churches and monasteries and the nationalisation of the huge estates that had belonged to the Synod. Finally, Mostovskoy would ask irritably, Vous me comprenez? With his usual smile, as though he were talking about ragu or tomato sauce, Gardy would say, Je comprends tout ce que vous dites. Je ne comprends pas seulement pourquoi vous dites cela. The other Russian prisons of war in the special bloc, not exempt from work. It was only late in the evening or during the night that Mostovskoy was able to talk to them. His sole exceptions were Brigade Commissar Osipov and General Goods. Someone Mostovskoy did often talk to was Ikonikov Mortz, a strange man who could have been any age at all. He slept in the worst place in the whole hut by the main door, where there was a freezing draught and where the huge latrine pail or parasha had once stood. The other Russians referred to him as the old parachutist. They looked on him as a holy fool and treated him with a mixture of disgust and pity. He was endowed with the extraordinary powers of endurance characteristic of madmen and simpletons. He never once caught cold, even though he would go to bed without taking off his rain-soaked clothes. And surely only the voice of a madman could be so clear and ringing. He had first introduced himself by walking up to Mostovskoy and staring silently into his face. What's the good news then? Mostovskoy had asked. Then he had smiled mockingly, as Ikonikov said in his sing-song voice, Good, but what is good? These words took Mostovskoy back to his childhood, to the days when his elder brother would come home from the seminary and discuss questions of theology with their father. That really is a hoary old question, he said. People have been puzzling over it ever since the Buddhists and the early Christians. And we Marxists have pondered it too. And have you found any answer? asked Ikonikov in a voice that made Mostovskoy laugh. The Red Army are finding an answer right now, said Mostovskoy. But there's something rather unctuous, if I may say so, in your tone of voice. You sound like a priest or a Tolstoyan. That's hardly surprising, said Ikonikov. I used to be a Tolstoyan. You don't say, exclaimed Mostovskoy. The strange man had begun to interest him. Do you know something, said Ikonikov. I'm certain that the persecution of the church by the Bolsheviks was beneficial to the Christian ideal. The church was in a pitiful state before the revolution. You're a true dialectician, said Mostovskoy. I too in my old age have been allowed to witness the miracle of the gospel. No replied Ikonikov with a frown. For you, the end justifies the means, and the means you employ are inhuman. I'm no dialectician, and you're not witnessing a miracle. So what can I do for you? snapped Mostovskoy. Don't make fun of me. Ikonikov was standing to attention, and his mournful voice now sounded tragic. I didn't come over here just to make you laugh. On the 15th of September last year, I watched 20,000 Jews being executed, women, children, and old men. That day I understood that God could not allow such a thing, and that therefore he did not exist. In the darkness of the present day, I can see your power and the terrible evil it's fighting. All right, then, said Mostovskoy. Let's talk. Ikonikov worked in the marshland not far from the camp. Huge concrete pipes were being laid to channel the river in its streams and so drain the low ground. The men sent to work here, for the most part those who had incurred the disapproval of the authorities, were called the bog soldiers. Ikonikov had small hands with fine fingers, and the fingernails of a child. He would return from work, soaked to the bone and smeared with clay, 
walk up to Mostovskoy's place on the boards and say, can I sit with you for a moment? Without looking at Mostovskoy, he would sit down, smile and draw his hand across his forehead. He had a very strange forehead. It was quite small, bulging and so bright that it seemed to exist independently of his dirty ears, his dark brown neck and his hands with their broken nails. The other Soviet prisoners of war, men with straightforward personal histories, considered him dubious and untrustworthy. Since the days of Peter the Great, generation after generation of his ancestors had been priests. It was only the last generation that had followed a different path. At their father's wish, Ikonikov and his brothers had received a lay education. He had been a student at the Petersburg Institute of Technology. During the final year, however, he had been converted to the teachings of Tolstoy. He had left the institute and become a people's teacher in a village to the north of Perm. After eight years, he had gone to Odessa. There, he had been taken on as an engine room mechanic in a merchant ship and had travelled to India and Japan. He had lived for a while in Sydney. After the revolution, he had returned to Russia and joined a peasant commune. This was a long-cherished dream. He had believed that communist agricultural labour would bring about the kingdom of heaven on earth. During the period of all-out collectivization, he had seen special trains packed with the families of kulaks. He had seen exhausted men and women collapse in the snow, never to rise again. He had seen closed villages where there wasn't a living soul in sight and where every door and window had been boarded up. He remembered one ragged peasant woman with an emaciated neck and swarthy hands. Her guards had been staring at her in horror, mad with hunger. She had just eaten her two children. Without leaving the commune, he had begun preaching the gospel and praying to God to take pity on the dying. In the end, he was sent to prison. The horrors of these years had affected his reason. After a year's internment in the prison psychiatric hospital, he had been released. He had then gone to Bilia, Russia, to live with his elder brother, a professor of biology who had managed to find him a job in a technical library. Then the war had begun and Bilia, Russia had been invaded. Ikonikov had witnessed the torments undergone by the prisoners of war and the executions of Jews in the towns and shtetls. He began to approach people in a state of near hysteria, begging them to give sanctuary to the Jews. He even tried to save the lives of Jewish women and children himself. Escaping the gallows by a miracle, he had ended up in the camp. The ideas of this dirty, ragged old man were a strange hotchpotch. He professed a belief in an absurd theory of morality that, in his own words, transcended class. Where acts of violence are committed, he explained to Mostovskoy, sorrow reigns and blood must flow. I saw the sufferings of the peasantry with my own eyes, and yet collectivization was carried out in the name of good. I don't believe in your good. I believe in human kindness. So you want us to be horrified when Hitler and Himmler are strung up on the gallows in the name of good? You can count me out. You ask Hitler, said Ikonikov and he'll tell you that even this camp was set up in the name of good. During these arguments, Mostovskoy felt like a man fighting off a jellyfish with a knife. The thrusts of his logic were powerless. The world has progressed no further, repeated Dukonikov, than the truth spoken by a sixth-century Christian. Condemn the sin and forgive the sinner. There was another old Russian in the hut, a one-eyed man called Chernetsov. One of the guards had smashed his glass eye and the gaping red socket stood out against his pale face. When he was talking to someone, he covered it over with the palm of his hand. A former Menshevik, he had escaped from Soviet Russia in 1921. For 20 years, he had worked as a bank clerk in Paris. He had been sent to the camp after calling upon his fellow employees to disobey the orders 
of the new German administration. Rostovskoy had as little to do with Chernetsov as possible. Chernetsov, for his part, was clearly deeply upset by the popularity of the old Bolshevik. Somehow, everyone in the hut was drawn to him. The Spanish soldier, the Belgian lawyer, the Norwegian owner of a stationery shop would all come to him with their questions. One day, Major Yashov, who was something of a hero to the Russian prisoners of war, had been sitting beside Mostovskoy. He was leaning towards him, one hand on his shoulder, speaking quickly and excitedly. Mostovskoy had suddenly looked round and seen Chernetsov staring at them from his place in the far corner. The anguish in his seeing eye seemed more terrible than the gaping bloodshot socket. Yes, I'm glad I'm not in your shoes, Mostovskoy had said to himself. It certainly wasn't mere chance that everyone was constantly asking after Major Yershov. Where's Yershov? You haven't seen Yershov, have you? Comrade Yershov, Major Yershov. Yershov said, ask Yershov. People from the other huts would come to see him. There was always a constant bustle around his place on the boards. Mostovskoy had christened him the master of men's minds. The 1860s and 1880s had both had their masters of men's minds. First, there had been the populists. Then, Mikhailovsky had come and gone. Now, this Nazi concentration camp had its own master of men's minds. Whole decades had gone by since Mostovskoy had first been imprisoned in a czarist jail. That had been in another century. There had been occasions in the last few years when Mostovskoy had taken offence at the lack of confidence in his practical abilities shown by some of the party leaders. Now he again felt conscious of his own power. Every day he saw how much weight his words carried with General Goods, the Brigade Commissar Osipov, with the sad and depressed Major Kirillov. Before the war, he had consoled himself with the thought that his removal from posts of responsibility at least meant that he was less involved with matters that aroused his misgivings. Stalin's autocratic rule, the bloody trials of the opposition, the lack of respect shown towards the old Bolsheviks. The execution of Bukharin, whom he had known and loved, had upset him deeply. He had known, however, that if he opposed the party, in any one of those matters, he would turn out, against his will, to have opposed the very cause to which he had devoted his life the cause of Lenin. At times, he had been tormented by doubt. Was it just cowardice that stopped him from speaking out? There had been many terrible things at that time. Yes, he would have given anything to talk once again to his friend, Lunacharsky. They had always understood one another so quickly, so easily. In this terrible camp, he had recovered his self-confidence, but there was one uneasy feeling that never left him. He was unable to recover his former sense of clarity and completeness, of being a friend among friends and a stranger among strangers. An English officer had once suggested that in Russia the censorship of anti-Marxist views might stand in the way of his philosophical work. But this wasn't what troubled him. It might inconvenience other people, he had replied, but it doesn't inconvenience a Marxist like myself. It's precisely because you're an old Marxist that I asked the question, the Englishman had retorted. He had winced with pain, but had been able to come out with an answer. Nor was it that he sometimes felt irritated with people as close to him as Osipov, Goods, and Yashov. No, what troubled Mostovskoy was that many things in his own soul were now foreign to him. He could remember times when he had felt overjoyed at meeting an old friend, only to find that he was now a stranger. But what could he do now? It was a part of himself that had become alien, that was out of place in the present day. He could hardly break with himself. He often got annoyed with Ikonikov, 
He would be rude and sarcastic. He would call him feeble-minded, a wet rag, a half-wit. But if they didn't meet for some time, he missed him. Yes, this was the main difference between the present and the years he had spent in prison as a young man. In those days he had been able to understand and love everything about his friends and comrades, while the least word or thought of his enemies had seemed alien and monstrous. Now, however, he would sometimes glimpse in the thoughts of an enemy what he had once found important himself, and discover something strangely alien in the thoughts of his friends. I must be getting old, he'd say to himself. Chapter 5 The American colonel had an individual cell in the special block. He was allowed to leave the hut during the evening and was given special meals. Rumour had it that the King of Sweden had intervened on his behalf at the request of President Roosevelt himself. This colonel had once given Major Nikonov a bar of chocolate when he was ill. He was very interested in the Russian prisoners of war and was always trying to start up conversations with them about German tactics and the causes of the disasters in 1941. He would often talk to Yeshov. Sometimes he looked into his bright, thoughtful eyes and forgot that he couldn't speak English. He found it hard to believe that a man with such an intelligent face could fail to understand him, especially when what they were saying was of such consuming interest. I can't believe it, he would say. You really don't understand? And Yershov would answer in Russian. The old sergeant had a fine command of every kind of language, except foreign ones. Nevertheless, in a language composed of smiles, glances, slaps on the back, and ten or fifteen words of atrociously mangled Russian, French, German and English, the Russians were able to discuss comradeship, solidarity, fellow feeling, love of one's home, love of one's wife and children, with people from dozens of different countries. Kamerad, gut, brot, super, kinder, zigarette, arbeit, and another dozen words that had originated in the camps themselves. Revier, Blockeltester, Kapo, Vernichtungslager, Apel, Apelplatz, Waschraum, Flugpunkt, Lagerschütze, were enough to express everything of real importance in the simple yet bewildering life for the prisoners. There were also several Russian words, Rebjata, Tabachok, Tavarish, that were also used by other nationalities. As for the word, Dokodiaga, meaning a prisoner who was on his last legs, this had been accepted by all 56 nationalities. The Soviet prisoners of war were unable even to agree among themselves. Some were ready to die rather than betray their country, while others considered joining up with Vlasov. The more they talked and argued, the less they understood each other. In the end they fell silent, full of mutual contempt and hatred. And in this silence of the dumb, these speeches of the blind, in this medley of people bound together by the same grief, terror and hope, in this hatred and lack of understanding between men who spoke the same tongue, you could see much of the tragedy of the twentieth century. Chapter 6 The conversations of the Russian prisoners of war were particularly sad on the evening after the first snowfall. Even men as energetic and self-disciplined as Colonel Zatokrilets and Brigade Commissar Osipov had fallen into a gloomy silence. Major Kirillov was sitting beside Ostovskoy. His soldiers were drooping and his head was nodding slowly up and down. The whole of his vast body seemed filled with melancholy. As for his dark eyes, they were like the eyes of someone with terminal cancer. Looking into such eyes, even a man's nearest and dearest would hope that his sufferings would soon be over. Pointing at Kirillov, the ubiquitous Kotikov whispered to Osipov, Either he's about to hang himself, 
or he's going to join up with Vlasov. Rostovskoy rubbed the grey stubble on his cheeks and said, Listen, Cossacks, everything's fine. Can't you see that? Every day that the state created by Lenin continues to exist is a death blow to fascism. Fascism has no choice. It must either destroy us or perish. The hatred fascism bears us is yet another proof, a far-reaching proof of the justice of Lenin's cause. The more the fascists hate us, the more certain we can be of our own rightness. And in the end, we will defeat them. He turned to Kirillov. What's the matter with you? Don't you remember that story of Gorky's? How he was walking up and down the prison courtyard and a Georgian shouted out, Hold your head up, you look like a bedraggled chicken. Everyone burst out laughing. And he was quite right. We must hold our heads high. Just think, the Soviet state is defending the ideals of communism. Do you think Hitler can get the better of that? Stalingrad is still holding out. It may have seemed before the war that we were going too far, that we really had tightened the screws. But now even a blind man can see that the end justifies the means. We certainly did tighten the screws, said Yeshov. That's for sure. We didn't tighten them enough, said General Goods. We should have gone further still. Then Hitler wouldn't have reached the Volga. It's not for us to give lessons to Stalin, said Osipov. True enough, said Bostovskoy. And if we perish in prisons or damp mines, then that's that. We must just think of something else. Such as? asked Yetzov loudly. Everyone exchanged glances, looking away again, and fell silent. Oh, Kirillov, Kirillov, said Yashov abruptly. The old man's quite right. We should rejoice that the fascists hate us. We hate them and they hate us, right? But just imagine being sent to a Russian camp. That really would be hard. But as for this, we're stout-hearted lads. We'll give the Germans a run for their money. <laughs>